she bangs. I'm wasted by the way she moves. No one ever looks so fine. She reminds me that a woman's got one thing on her mind. Welcome to She Bangs, She Bangs. Marriage, adultery, Texas, and Jesus. A totally spiritual and equally foul-mouthed podcast about marriage, mistresses, and possibilities. I'm your host, Jennifer Banks. Last episode, the first episode, I told you about my California Igots group. It's the group that inspired this whole podcast. A group of people with spouses who had left us, but with equal gumption to want them back. We met every week, poured wine, and shared stories. So, grab a glass of wine or whiskey, and welcome to Igots. Episode 2, The Man Who Stole My Heart. Stopped into the church, passed along the way. Well, I got down on my knees, I pretend to pray. You know the preacher likes a throne, he knows I'm gonna stay. recap from last episode, I had just left Texas, headed for Hollywood, and my own California dreamin', and I most certainly stopped into a church I passed along the way. I only knew one person in LA at this point, so he took me to his church that was offering an upcoming singles retreat. The kind where all single people in church go away for a weekend to camp, play paintball, and sit around campfires playing shitty songs about Jesus. You're supposed to go for lofty reasons like being in nature and getting in touch with God, but the real goal of these weekend getaways was to hook up, possibly for life. Being so new to the city though, I was more interested in just meeting people than I was meeting anyone special. I mean, I did have a boyfriend back in Texas, Ray from Star, though my heart wasn't totally in it. I made the four and a half hour drive up to Big Bear for the weekend and needed a restroom break before gathering with the other campers. I had just washed my hands and being that I never used hand dryers, they take way too long, I wiped my hands down my pants, not getting them completely dry. As I come out of the restroom, a tall lanky guy with a huge smile and curly hair approaches me with his hand out. Hi, I'm James. Hi, uh, I'm Jennifer. Sorry, I have wet hands. I just washed them. Good to know, he says. I like a girl with clean hands. I liked him immediately. He was kind of goofy and his energy was contagious, genuine, cheerful. It seemed like everything was going to be okay in his world because everything was okay in his world. Later that night, we sat around the campfire and we all started talking about dreams and purpose you know, 20-year-old stuff. And James says he was in LA to produce movies for Jesus. My heart flutters. I was in LA to be an actress for Jesus. Kismet. I sort of joke about this because to anyone listening who's not a Christian, this sounds ridiculous, making movies for Jesus. And it is. And it's not if it comes from a real and true place. A place that says, I believe in God, and I believe he wants me to show the world how much he loves them. 
It's what all good motivations are made of. A desire to better society, to spread love. And as flippant as I'm being about this campfire share, it was a pivotal moment because here I am, this dreamy 25-year-old trying to make it in Hollywood, and I meet a guy who's wanting to do the same. And at the core of our dreams is God. After that weekend, James and I started hanging out in groups, and one night we found ourselves alone, and James says that he likes me. Though I had grown very fond of James, I did have Ray back home, and I did love him. We'd been together almost a year, but the distance was making my already waning feelings even harder to ignore. However, I would not betray Ray by confessing feelings to another man while Ray and I were still together. So my response to James this night was this. You know I have a boyfriend, James, so to all parties involved, I will refrain from saying anything. But don't take my silence as a bad thing. A couple weeks later, my roommate threw a comfort food party. A party where you bring your favorite comfort food to share, wear PJs, and everyone sits around the Christmas tree watching It's a Wonderful Life. Kind of genius party, right? At the closing of the party, as the last few comfy and well-fed souls were straggling out the door into the cool L.A. night air, James leaves me a lockbox with no key and a card. I was instructed not to read the car until he left. The second he did, I tore into it. In the card was a riddle about something warm that I keep beside me, and that's where I would find the key. I eventually found it in my Bible by my bed. Aww. When I opened the lockbox, inside was a book James had made for me. Now, this was before Shutterfly or Apple Books. The dude literally laminated pages, glued them all together, sewed them into a sort of hardcover book, and clamped it all together with a drawer pull. Despite my meager description, it was really lovely. And the book was entitled, The Beginner's Guide to Jennifer Bangs. An entire book about me with captions and pictures and funny things he'd picked up on the three months we had been friends. I was so taken with the gift. I mean, my God, an entire book about me. But I had a boyfriend back home. I knew I would effuse nothing but giddy girly joy if I called him to thank him. And I didn't want to be untrue to Ray. So I didn't call James to say thank you. I didn't call him to say anything at all. It never crossed my mind what James was thinking, the torture of waiting to hear from me, and then to hear nothing, and after such a risky gift. But I loved Ray. I would not be untrue to him. I struggled for a long time over what to do, and bemoaning to my best friend one night, she gave the simplest and greatest advice. She asked me, Who can you say no to, Jen? Not, who do you want more, or what do you like about either one, and make two columns side by side and compare them. No, simply, whom can you say no to? And it was obvious I could say no to Ray because he was there in Texas, and James was here in California. So I broke up with Ray and told James I was in. James asked me out for our first official date. It was on a Saturday night. The Friday night before, I went out, And when I pulled into my garage, there standing right outside was Ray. What are you doing here? I said. I came to win you back, he replied. Oh, 
Well, where are you staying? I guess with you, he answered. It was late. Who knows how long he'd been standing there, so I said he could stay with me. On the couch. The next day I called James, told him my ex, Ray, was in town, and that I couldn't go on our date. He was rattled, but took it in stride. He mentioned he was going to the Getty Museum that day with our mutual friend Paige. Now, Paige, James, and I had all met several months before at church. Well, Ray had just mentioned that he wanted to go to the Getty Museum that day, so I was like, uh, I hope we don't run into each other, but it's a big place, so hopefully we'll be good. So Ray and I go to the Getty, and we're sitting in this large, oval-shaped green garden where everyone just kind of congregates after you've stared at statues or paintings for too long. I mean, side note, if you haven't been to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, it's like heaven. Large marble stairs and columns high above the clouds with ancient artifacts and art. And then there are these glorious gardens within the museum. And that's where Ray and I sat. And then James and Paige walk up. Now, I had always imagined how romantic it would be to have two men fight over me. And then I found myself looking at two men about to fight over me. It was not cool. Ray jumps up and is all twitchy and nervous. I guess I told him about James. And James has fire in his eyes, like full on red. He looks like he's going to shake Ray's hand to death if that's even possible. He just kind of starts laughing nervously, maniacally maybe. And they stand there shaking hands, looking like if they could destroy each other in one bite, they would. It was an awful feeling. Not romantic. At all. James and Paige walk away, and I realize I can't play tour guide to Ray anymore. I don't want to be with him. I don't want to be at the Getty with him. I want to be there with James. I want to be going on my date with James. Ray and I drive home, fighting the whole way, and when we get back to my apartment, I end up screaming at him that he has to leave. So he does. James and Paige came over later that evening. They brought sandwiches, and we ate. Not the date I was hoping for, but I was glad the evening was ending with James. James was a PK, a preacher's kid, the sixth of seven children born to a couple still together, and like all of his other siblings, they all had happy marriages with tons of happy kids. It was one large, super happy family. James had a dark sense of humor, but was equally positive and happy. The word I used for him was jolly, like Santa. Think about that. How many 25-year-olds can you describe as jolly? But that's who James was. A tall, excited puppy of a man. He was incredibly goofy, but a serious, serious businessman slash entrepreneur who knew code, but also how to work a room. I never met anyone like him. And he was so enthusiastic about his love for me. We'd walk down the street and pass total strangers, and James would look at them and point at me and say, I love her. I'm so in love with this girl. James partied like a rock star, often securing bottle service at the clubs we'd go to in L.A., but he led a Bible study. And whenever we'd go on dates to movies, if there was any nudity, I'd catch him out of the corner of my eye looking down at the ground. When I asked him about it later, he said he didn't want to fill his head with images of other women. After only a few months, my heart felt like it was going to burst. 
One summer night, I confessed to him that I didn't know how much longer I could take just being his girlfriend. I wanted to start and end every day with him. James was so kind, putting my fears to rest, that he too wanted to get married, but that financially he just wasn't ready, and that we had our whole lives to be together and to trust God in his timing. I went to bed that evening a little sad, but also marveling at the wisdom of my boyfriend. The next day, I had a commercial audition for Subway Sandwiches my new acting agent had gotten me. I walked in the audition room and was instructed that I was a Subway employee working the bread oven. I would hear a customer come in, ask, what can I get you? Then turn around and take his order. We do this quite a few times, and every time I'm instructed to take longer and longer pantomiming the bread in the oven. I was very confused why they wanted such a long shot of my ass to the camera, but you don't argue these things. And on the fourth or fifth take, I take a ridiculously long time working the bread oven, say my line, what can I get you? Then turn around, and this time, instead of the other actor standing there, it's James. My first thought is, what are you doing here? You're ruining my audition. He gets down on one knee and whispers something I don't remember and there's a ring in his hand and I realize this is a proposal and he set the whole fake audition up with my agent, with the casting director's office, with the film crew, with the other actor, everything. We do some toasts and then get into James's car and start heading west. Now, you can only go so far west in LA before you hit the water. We get to a marina and he walks me up to a yacht a private yacht he had chartered with a private chef and a waiter to bring us dinner. And as the boat pushes away from the dock, James takes me up on the deck. Look, he says, the sun is setting. Do you want to watch your first sunset now? I don't know why people run. I don't know why things fall through. I don't know how anybody survives in this life without someone like you. I could protect and preserve I could say no and goodbye But why, Jamie, why I want to be your wife I want to bear your child family was from the East Coast, and James and I were on the West Coast, so Texas seemed like the perfect place to get married. A good, literal middle ground. I immediately flew back home to Texas to plan the wedding. I was starting a new job the next week in California, so I had limited time to book all the vendors in Texas. I was in Texas for about three days, in a whirlwind of cake tastings, venue hunting, and gown shopping. 
I just walked out of Neiman Marcus when I got a call on my cell phone. It was James's dad. Hi, Jennifer, he says in his Mississippi drawl. James is okay, but there's been an accident. I felt my heart drop and my spirit started shouting within me. It's hard to describe moments like this, but sometimes you are given news that is happening elsewhere, and yet your spirit is telling you something now that is different than what you are hearing. I was being told James was okay, but my spirit knew that he wasn't. James had been out of town with his business partners jet skiing on a lake. The jet ski malfunctioned, and instead of propelling through the wave as they're designed to do, this one hit the wave like a brick wall. James flipped over the handlebars, snapping his femur in half, ripping his groin, and hitting his head on the front of the jet ski, knocking him unconscious into the water. He was floating in the middle of the lake. Miraculously, an ambulance was driving by at the very same time of the crash. They loaded James's body out of the water, into the boat, and into the ambulance. He almost died several times on the way to the hospital. I immediately booked a flight out to my fiancé's bedside. I walked into the hospital room, and he had wires hooked up all over him. He was conscious now, but not the James that I had said yes to one week before. Anytime he woke up, he'd ask where he was. Georgia, James. You're in Georgia. Georgia America or Georgia the country, he would say. He talked a lot about going to war and that he had to get ready for war. James had never so much as even held a gun. Half the time he seemed okay, but then other times he'd shout, I am not a hot dog. I have been grilled, stuffed, fried. I am not a hot dog. I told the staff my concerns, but they waved me off, said it was the morphine, not to worry. Until one night around midnight, I got a call at my hotel asking me to please come up to the hospital. I walked in and James was out of bed, sitting in a corner, his eyes bloodshot and scared. They're trying to kill me, Jennifer. Everyone here is trying to kill me. Apparently, he had woken up, leapt out of his bed. Mind you, he just had a steel rod put into his severed femur. He'd grabbed a porta potty walker and tried to escape the hospital. When a nurse tried to stop him, he swung at her. That's when security called me. The staff finally conceded this wasn't typical morphine behavior and ran some more tests. While I waited, I walked out to the deck of the hospital. Don't ask me why a hospital has a wooden deck, but I walked out to this deck that separated the different wings, bowed my head, and asked myself if James was crazy, if he was a different person, would I still marry him? And in that moment... I answered yes, that I loved him no matter what, and that I would marry him despite a brain injury or not. The results came back. Bone marrow from the large break in his femur had gotten into his bloodstream and into his lungs and was shutting oxygen down. They did another procedure and started him on breathing treatments. There were several times I would sit by his bedside and scream at him, breathe, James, breathe because he would just stop and start to die. The hallucinations and Beautiful Mind episodes stopped, and I stayed for a couple more days and then had to fly back to California to start my new job. 
I kissed James goodbye and left him in the care of his mom and dad. A few days later, James arrived at LAX. I came up to the airport to pick his mother and James up. His mom chirped with a grin on her face that the flight had been hard. James was in a wheelchair and he sort of echoed the same sentiment, that it was hard, but that he was fine. The mixed message was confusing. They both looked beat, but his mom was grinning and James was telling me it was all good. The next few weeks, it was more of the same. I was being told everything was fine. James was fine. James was healing. James was always so positive and happy and I'd make little dates for him or try to do fun things and he'd accept it, but there was a part of him that was different. Whenever I'd ask him, he'd say he was fine. The job I had was actually outside of Los Angeles, so during our entire engagement, James and I did not live in the same city. I'd drive up to see him or he'd drive down to see me. It was a short engagement as we had wanted to get married before the holidays and before my other two brothers were getting married. Both my brothers and I had all gotten engaged within six months of each other. And either James and I got married in four months or not for another year. Because James and I were so in love and so sure about each other, we didn't want to wait a whole year. So we'd made plans to get married four months after the engagement. But the accident happened only one week after our engagement. People have asked me over the years why we didn't postpone the wedding. And it never once dawned on me to do such a thing. And here's why. James kept assuring me he was okay. His can-do, chirpy, jolly attitude did not afford him the capability to say, hey, I'm really hurting. I can't do this right now. And because the wedding was in Texas and I had left all the detailed wedding arrangements to my mother, something she was delighted to do, I just focused on buying lingerie and finding a wedding dress and having bachelorette parties and enjoying my engagement while my fiancé, three hours away, sat hurting and healing. He was a computer programmer, so he'd lost his job because his brain couldn't think the same way. His brain hurt to think. And yet, he always put on a chipper face that he was okay and would be fine and that he'd get a job once disability wore off. And so I just bebopped along thinking everything was okay in his world because he told me everything was okay in his world. We got married as planned four months later. When I stood at the altar and pronounced the words, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and in health, and good times and bad, I remember thinking I was saying these words for real. They weren't just flowery, nice things to say. They were real. I had done them. I loved James. I was with him no matter what. I was in this forever. And it felt effortless. True to his word, James got a job immediately after our wedding. And within our first two years of marriage, James was making six figures nearing seven, and I landed two national commercials back to back. So things were going well. We bought a cute little house in northern LA in a town called Van Nuys and lived on a cute little street with the most fantastic neighbors you could ask for. In fact, we all had babies around the same time and discovered our baby monitors could all reach to Courtney and Eric's house across the street. So we'd tuck our little ones in, set the alarm, lock the door, and walk across the street to drink and play poker with the other new parents. 
we line our baby monitors up in a row on the bar. And I told myself I wasn't a bad mother. It was just like if we lived in a really big mansion and that's how far away I was. I felt like the luckiest girl in the world. I had a wonderful husband and a beautiful baby boy and we were making good money and had wonderful friends and neighbors. And a part of me didn't feel like I deserved all this goodness. Not that I was a bad person, I just couldn't believe how fortunate I was. I knew I had married such a catch, and I felt so blessed to be his wife and to have this budding life with him. James had such great patience with me. Actresses can be emotional monsters, and he was a great dad. I was so appreciative of my steady, jolly husband who kept us on track and took care of us. I told him all the time how perfect he was. I remember thinking all the time, my husband is perfect. He hated that label, he'd tell me, but it's how I saw him. For my birthday that year, James threw me an enormous birthday party. He decorated our entire backyard, hired a chef, a photographer, invited every person we knew, and gave a toast under the twinkling lights to what an amazing woman, wife, and mother I was. He was so good to me all the time. I loved him. I loved our life. When our son Andrew was eight months old, I put him down for a nap one afternoon and went into the living room to watch Oprah. I love Oprah. The show that day was on mistresses, and I almost turned it off. I said a silent prayer to God, thanking him that my husband would never cheat on me. After the TV show, I opened the French doors that led from our living room to our backyard where our office was. We had converted our detached garage in the backyard into an office, so I went outside, crossing by the rose bushes and walking by our grotto, a large jacuzzi that seats 10 and has super powerful jets that enable you to swim against them in place. Our backyard was my favorite place of our house. I went into the office, did a little work, then came back outside to cross back into the house. I had taken two steps when the French doors to our house swung open. James emerged. Before I could say anything more than hi or what are you doing home so early, James says our mutual friend Paige was there. He'd asked her to come over and babysit Andrew. She was here to babysit because James wanted to go out to eat. I have no idea why the next words fell out of my mouth in response, but I looked into James's eyes and said in all seriousness, are you leaving me? He kind of laughed, stammered, <laughs> Let's just go out and eat. Oh my God, you're leaving me. Let's just go, Paige is here. His eyes were wild, panicked. I'm not going anywhere, I said. I'm not leaving. We can talk right here, right now. James ushers me into the detached converted office and he tells me the week before when he was on a business trip that he slept with someone else. What? what, what? Why? Because I want a divorce. Um, then... You get your wish, I said before my mind could even process what was happening. We had an hour-long logistical conversation about the house and custody and splitting assets, and my mind is racing like, what is happening? I didn't even know James was unhappy. And then he walked out the door. I walked back into the house where Paige was sitting. James just left me, Paige. Her response was flat. I don't know if she was in shock or she already knew. I don't really remember. I told her she could leave, I guess. 
I immediately called my father-in-law, the pastor, who ironically was also a marriage counselor. James had already called him, so he had been prepped. Jennifer, he says, you have every right to divorce James and we will support you in this. But if you don't want to, I can help you. Yes, I said, please, (laughs) I don't want a divorce. I had always thought I would be out the door if my husband ever cheated on me. I mean, why would you want to fight for someone when they didn't want you? But now that I was in this position, I realized how much there was to lose. So my initial reaction was, I don't want a divorce. I wasn't angry at James. I was crushed. I called my parents and told them the news. My mother flew out the next day to be with me and help me with the baby. I was so thankful for the physical support she brought those first few days. Remember, she's really good at doing stuff. But she immediately started listing all the ways in which I was a bad wife, and that's probably why James had left me. I was appalled. I didn't understand how she could be so mean. Her daughter had just gotten cheated on, and she uses this opportunity to kick her while she's down? My father, true to his character, said nothing. Did nothing. My parents sucked. You know whose parents didn't suck? James's. His dad flew out the next day, as well as my mom, and stayed with James until my mom left, and then my father-in-law stayed with Andrew and me. He'd meet with James in the afternoons and then come spend the night with his new grandson and me at night. James's dad turned me on to a slew of books on saving a marriage alone. Since he was a marriage counselor, he had a lot to share. The reading and counseling lessened the incessant pain of my husband's departure. So for that first week, I was busy and still in shock. After everyone left, I was alone. Except for Andrew, but a newborn isn't much comfort. In fact, I was pretty much an emotional wreck, so I hired a friend who was also a nanny to come and take care of him a few times a week. It was just so hard for me to function. I was so confused. My world had been turned upside down overnight, and I was overwhelmed by it all. I spent a lot of time in our backyard. It was October, and as Southern California goes, it was still sunny, and our rose bushes were still in bloom. We had a hammock that I'd bought in Costa Rica at my shitty brother's wedding, and I'd lie in the hammock and cry and ask God what to do. Should I stay? Should I fight for James? Should I let him go? After about a solid week of tears and prayers, I heard God say something I'd never heard him say before, that it was my choice, that he'd be with me if I decided to let James go, or that he'd help me if I decided to stay. But either way, he'd help me, and either decision was okay. Now, before anyone starts to think that I must have known about James's affair, I tell you I didn't. I'm a smart woman. Not much gets past me. But some people are just really good liars. That doesn't make me dumb. That makes them slimy. Every night, I'd put our son to bed and I'd light a candle and lay myself prostrate on our eggplant-colored carpet and pray for a miracle. All the books I was reading and all the websites I was visiting told story after story of people fighting for their marriages alone and the spouses coming back. I never knew that was a thing. Like, I had never heard of such a thing. 
But apparently there is this really, really big group of people who fight for their wayward spouses. And much of the time, they come home. This gave me great hope. I knew this hope was born out of being the kind of person who grew up on Bible stories of God parting seas and virgins having babies and dead people rising from graves. Impossible stuff, but with the hand of God. And here is where I was asking for the hand of God to bring a miracle to my little home in the San Fernando Valley. I wasn't naive enough to think that God would turn James around, only that he could. And that's where I began to lay my hope every day. I decided to stay and fight for three reasons. Number one, for the sake of our son. In the state of California, custody is typically split 50-50. I didn't give birth to my newborn son only to see him nine out of the next 18 years. That was bullshit. I knew I could get remarried and have a potentially better marriage, but I knew I would never have a better family. Number two, I fought for James. I knew his head was up his ass. Wasn't it in these moments when the stronger spouse has to do the heavy lifting, at least for a season? I mean, isn't that what love is? Sacrifice of self for the good of the other? And number three, I fought for me. I didn't want to lose our life and our dreams. I had too many memories and too much life we'd shared and too much life we'd promised to share for me to accept that this was over. Standing in our backyard those first two weeks, I was crying, praying one day, how was I going to handle the emotional heartbreak of loving a wayward man, when my mind immediately flashed to Joseph, the boy from years before whom I had loved madly and whom had taken me on a roller coaster relationship, breaking up with me every few weeks. And it was then, standing in my California backyard, seven years after this relationship in Texas had ended, that I heard God answer that prayer. Now you know why you dated Joseph, Jennifer. Now you know why. Because of him, you know how to love and wait for someone even when they're walking the other way, even when it's confusing, even when it hurts. I felt an entire web of confusion and disharmony that had plagued me for years come into complete clarity and focus. I knew how to do this. I knew how to do this, I told myself. I had done it for years with Joseph. And I also knew what not to do. I would not continue asking for signs, I thought. I had spent years asking God to clarify what he had told me about waiting and loving Joseph because circumstances didn't add up. I kept asking for signs and he kept answering, but I was in a constant state of thinking I was crazy. So I knew then and there that this time I would not drive myself crazy asking every five seconds if I was hearing God right. And most importantly, I will not despair, I thought. I had spent so many nights bawling my eyes out in confusion and heartbreak over Joseph, and they were all wasted tears. It's one thing to be sad. It's another to despair. And I knew where despair led me. Nowhere. So this time it would be different. I would not despair. God, it hurt, but I would not despair. I was resolute. I did ask God for one thing, not to have this relationship end like Joseph's, fizzling into nothingness. I just could not handle that again. But this time around, I knew it would be different. Why? Because this time around, I knew God's will in the matter. I knew what to pray. 
I wasn't married to Joseph, so I didn't know what the Bible had to say about us. The Bible doesn't really talk about boyfriends, but it does talk about husbands. And since James was my husband, I could read and know what God had to say about husbands and wives and marriage and infidelity. And so I decided to stay and fight for my cat of a husband because he was my husband and this was the life I had. I'm past patiently waiting, I'm passionately smashing every expectation, every action an act of creation. I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow. Tune in next episode, episode three, How to Fight Alone. This is She Bangs, She Bangs, Marriage, Adultery, Texas, and Jesus. Find me on Twitter at Jennifer Bangs or SheBangsSheBangs.com. Cheers. Until next time. Not for-